Uh, I want to remind everyone that this is a Bible teaching church. That's a great place for an amen. <laughs> hate to have to work so hard, but you know, that's a great place for Well, this is a Bible teaching church. All right, so um, what do you think you need when you're at a Bible teaching church? You're going to need to have a Bible. So if you don't have one with you or don't have one of your own, um, you can use your electronic devices, but I sure do like hearing the pages turn. But we've got a bunch of them at the front, so, uh, at the front door. So if you uh, need a Bible, uh, if you don't have one, then just raise your hand, and uh, Ronnie's up. He'll get you taken care of. We'll make sure that you have a Bible because you don't want to go into battle without a sword, right? We've got to have our book with us when we start our study. So... Um, we're in the book of Luke. We've been uh, in this Dear Theophilus series as we look at uh, Dr. Luke's foundation for a confident faith. I probably should have called it his prescription for a confident faith, but that's really not accurate. He's laying a foundation by telling us what has actually happened, what he's investigated, uh, the stories about Christ he looked into himself. Uh, Brad, I seem just a little hot if we could bring that down just a tear. Uh, and so uh, he's not prescribing like we might see in the letters that Paul writes. He's telling us this is what happened. It's essentially a textbook, a history book. Here's what happened. Here's what Jesus did. Here's what Jesus taught. Here's the, the context, the historical setting. And so we're picking up today in Luke chapter 3 as we press on into this study. So open with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 3. We'll be looking at the first 20 verses. If you'll indulge me, I'll read the whole thing to you now, and I would invite you to follow along. If your translation, if what you have in your hand sounds a little different than mine, uh, our Bibles that we pass out here are the New International Version. I have an older edition of the New International Version, so it's the same translation, but some of the words have been updated. If you have a different translation, the original language is the same. The renderings are good in all of the major translations. This is the one that we've chosen. Starting with verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip the Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now, one of the things we need to recognize as a pattern for Dr. Luke as he's laying this story out is he's constantly taking us back to a historical context. He's using secular history to give us a place and a date. During this time, <clears throat> you have uh, what used to be a single kingdom divided up into four um, four governorships, essentially. This, these tetrarchs were put over the region, but they all answered to Rome. He's giving us this specific time and place so that we can look at it. At this particular time, we see that two priests served. There were two high priests uh, in the temple. That's not what God had prescribed God had prescribed one. There were two. This was, had become a corrupted and political position now. So you had the face that would uh, represent Rome in the temple. That's not what God had called for. And so there's a corruption of the priesthood. Having set the stage for us, he points out that John, son of Zechariah, if you've been with us, you know that John, this is John the baptizer we're talking about, John the Baptist, John the immerser. John was the son of Zechariah, who was a priest. Normally that priest's son would also serve in the temple. It was a family job. And so as they uh, went through this, John is not serving in the temple. Instead, he's out in the wilderness. We see more about that from Matthew. But John uh, kind of had the look of a wild man. He's out there, he's, uh, his hair's unkempt, he's wearing camel's hair clothing and eating locusts and honey. Uh, not a typical normal dude. His appearance, his general mannerism would have reminded the people of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. So while John's in the wilderness, he receives the word of the Lord. Notice what happens. Uh, verse 3, he went in, after receiving the word of the Lord, 
he went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance. I would underline that in my Bible if I were you. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, now Luke is going back to to the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for Him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, now before we get to what he says, notice there are crowds coming to be baptized by him. He gets the word of the Lord, this crazy wild man out in the desert, seems like kind of a nut job. He's not, but he might appear that way. And he receives a word from the Lord, this prophet, Old Testament prophet, Jesus hasn't uh, completed the work yet, so we're still in the Old Testament, even though it shows up in the New Testament. And John receives this word, and he immediately responds to the word by going out and declaring it to the people all around. That's what he was doing. He's preaching this gospel, or not this gospel, but he's preaching this baptism. And the baptism specifically is a baptism of repentance unto forgiveness. Repentance bringing forgiveness. And the baptism was an indication of that. That's what he was preaching to them. Now, Preachers like it when crowds respond. Here's what happens. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized to him, You brood of vipers! This is how you keep attendance down in church. (laughs) You brood of vipers! You bunch of snakes! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the foot of the tree, at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John is getting to the heart of this. This is what we're going to be looking at a lot during the message today. John is not telling them not to be baptized, he's telling them don't be hypocrites, don't be fake. Don't come as part of the crowd because it's the cool thing to do. That's not the point. You need a real change. They respond in verse 10, What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Tax collectors were hated by the Jews. They were often Jewish guys, the the ones who are here most likely are. Why else would they be coming to a Jewish prophet? But they worked for Rome, and they were known pretty, it was like, uh, it was proverbial thing that they're going to cheat the people. They're collecting more than they were supposed to and pocketing the difference. They were known for greed and deceit. Tax collectors were hated. But here they are speaking to the prophet. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than, you're, than you are required to, he told them. Seems like a pretty basic instruction. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? Now these probably weren't Roman soldiers. They may have been, but they probably weren't. Why would a Roman soldier come to a, a Jewish prophet? They didn't think much of Jews to begin with. They certainly had no use for their prophets. Why would they speak on behalf of this uh, made-up God? He can't really be real like, you know, Zeus and Mars. I was waiting for that laughter because it, it's kind of funny. It, it's funny how often we do that. We, we look at the belief in the one true living God and say, that can't be right. It must be made up. The world actually started from a big explosion in the multiverse, in the infinite number of parallel universes that mathematically had to somehow eventually lead to life. That's so much more realistic than believing in an intelligent designer who created it all. But these soldiers were probably, see that's how sermons get long as I start going off on that. So (laughs) these soldiers were probably temple soldiers, may have been Herod soldiers, but they were in all likelihood Jewish soldiers. And as they are here, they're saying, hey, we're soldiers, we're not tax collectors. What should we do to produce fruit in keeping with repentance? 
And John tells them, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. For a lot of us, we might want to underline that for personal application. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ, the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to tie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That sounds exciting, and a lot of people have kind of made that out to sound as if, you know, they're talking about this baptism of passion, that perhaps the Holy Spirit manifesting himself in Acts 2, where it looks like tongues of fire are descending on the people, but that's not at all the case. And John makes it clear in the very next verse, in the very next sentence, he points out that this baptism of fire is a baptism of judgment, not of passion. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. It's interesting that it's still called good news even after talking about being burned up with unquenchable fire. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, pause, Philip's wife is named Herodias, and so uh, Herod is having a, a fling that's pretty well known. Everybody's aware of it. John calls him out on it. says, hey, listen, you as the Tetrarch here in the government, as the government leader, especially here, especially as one who would claim some sort of a, uh, of a background connected to this, you of all people need to recognize that you represent God. Your immorality will not go unpunished. As all politicians do, he loved hearing that. When John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Let's pray as we start up. Father God, You have given us your word so that we might know you. I pray today that as we look into what John tells the people there in Galilee, that we might be able to find the principles that are eternal, that we might see the reflection of who you are in these words. We might take that deep into our hearts that we might be transformed by your truth. Father, right now, in the midst of this moment, speak beyond my words. Father, <laughs> there are so many things that could keep us from being able to let this seed take root in our hearts. We ask by your grace by the authority of Jesus Christ, that every demon or deceiving voice would be silenced right now. That you would move in us to plow up our hardened hearts, that we might receive your word. That you would remove from us the distraction of everything else going on today or this weekend or this month or this year. That you would shatter in us the hardness of bitterness and the remnants of unforgiveness in our hearts. Father, speak to us by your Spirit. Move in our lives today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so as we're looking at this story, Dr. Luke is showing us how this all fits together. We're still in, in this introduction to the gospel story. We haven't actually gotten to Luke's gospel yet. He's still setting the scene. So he's walked us through uh, the 
the beginning, as the angel came and announced that John would be born as the forerunner of Messiah, and that Jesus would be born as Messiah, sired not by a human, but by God himself, by the Holy Spirit in a virgin named Mary. And as good Jewish people, they kept the law and they presented him to the temple, at the temple to God. And when they got to the temple, God himself, through his Holy Spirit moving in a man named Simeon, brought him to that place at that time. And a woman named Anna brought her to that place at that time that they might encounter this infant Messiah who had done nothing at this point. Remember that. When they bring Jesus to the temple, he hadn't done anything other than all the things that all of your babies have done. Now imagine at eight days old or three months old, what's your baby doing? Not saving the planet, not preaching in the temple, not heroic deeds. You get excited if they roll over. You get a giggle, and it's, that's the highlight. It's going all over Instagram, right? We're going we're gonna, to you know, blow this thing up because it's so awesome. That's, that's all Jesus was doing at that time. But God clarified through his Holy Spirit that this was the Messiah. And we saw that because of what he, what he was, who he was, who he is, that Jesus would do the things that Messiah would do. Now we jump ahead to Luke 3, and we see John grown now, not a little boy, not a baby, but out in the wilderness, and he receives a word from God, and then he goes and declares that word of God. He proclaims the truth, and he's telling people, listen, repent, Turn from your wickedness. Turn back to God. You have known the law throughout your lives. You have been called to Him. And you've done your thing instead of His thing. His judgment is coming. Repent. The Lord is near. And as He did this, we're told here that He was preparing the way. That's what was prophesied that one would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready God's people to receive the Lord, to pave the path, to plow up the field, to set the table, if you will, so that Messiah could come and do what he was meant to do. Dr. Luke is showing us what is our core reality today. Before we can see Christ, we must see life differently. Before we can see Christ, we must see life differently. We have to change our minds. We have to recognize that there's a problem before we begin to pursue the solution. If you don't know you're sick, you don't go to the doctor. You don't take the prescription. You don't have the surgery. But we're not just sick. We're dead. We need a resurrection. John's saying, listen, you need to recognize you can't do life your way and think you're going to get God-given results. You get exactly what doing life your way brings. Just what God promised to Adam and Eve in the garden. Do it your way, you get death. Do it my way, you get life. He said the same thing to the children of Israel through, uh, through Moses, through Joshua. When Joshua took over for Moses, he said, I, I set before you life and death. Choose life. Seems like an easy choice, and yet we continue to want life while we do our own thing. Say that core reality with me. Before we can see Christ, we must see life differently. For those of you who like alliteration, we threw this in just for fun. Receiving rebirth in the revelation of our Redeemer requires reckoning reality rightly, resulting in real repentance. If I don't put some alliteration in occasionally, my brother and son will come after me and chase me down. See, you're not a real preacher if you don't use alliteration. But this is what we're talking about. Messiah would come, but before Messiah could come, the people had to be made ready. They had to be able to see things rightly. They needed to turn from their way to His. Last week in Luke 2, we saw that because of who He is, Jesus was able to do all that was required to save sinners. Identity drives activity. But this week, John makes it abundantly clear 
that activity must also accompany identity. There must always be a congruent relationship between our profession and our practice, what we say and what we do. A congruent relationship. Congruence essentially means in agreement or in harmony. If you want peace in your life, you have to have a harmonious life. Even pagan religions recognize that. Psychologists recognize that. If you think one way and live another way, you're going to be in disharmony. You will have mental disorder and disease. But to have harmony, we need congruence. What we claim and what we live must match, however imperfectly that may be. John is saying what has always been true. Real life is always congruent life. John was born to be the forerunner of Christ. We were told that from the beginning in in Luke chapter 1. That was his purpose. He came to be the one to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was here to do that, to prepare the people to receive the Lord. Before Messiah would come, repentance was needed. The people of God needed conviction before conversion. They needed repentance before revelation. Preparing the way for the Lord meant laying a foundation, tilling the field, setting the table, whatever makes it easier for you to view that. Repentance would involve seeing that I'm on the wrong road, and when I see that I'm on the wrong road, there's one logical thing to do, right? Recalculating. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to return to the route, or route, depending on how your Siri pronounces it. I need to change roads. When Messiah would come, when Messiah arrived, we would see that He is the road. But before we could could choose Him, we could see that, we would need to see that there was a problem. Before we can see Christ, we must see life differently. So there are some things that we see in this passage that um, John makes abundantly clear in this brief little message. It's really simple. He's saying, be baptized to identify yourself with God's way. To identify yourself with repentance. This is a really important thing. Ritual and reality. He's preaching about the baptism, but he also is talking about behavior. Here's his point. Baptism is a public identification. It wasn't new. John didn't make this up. Baptism was a a Greek tradition that the Jews then later appropriated to uh, accompany proselytes coming into the Jewish nation, to choose the Jewish way of life. God had already made His provisions, and you'd be circumcised, renounce all of your other ties, get rid of all your pagan beliefs, and then you would commit yourself to God and to the law. And so they would use this Greek tradition, this symbol of identification to show that now I have washed away my old way of thinking and I am turning to this new way. So just as the Greeks did, the Jews did, John does here, you would immerse the person in water. That was the symbol. That's why they used the word baptism, which was, that's literally what that meant. It would be used for completely submerging a piece of fabric that you were dying. To, it was also used as a military term when a uh, ship was completely sunk. That was baptism. And so John did what they had been doing, but with a different twist. John's baptism was a little unusual. He wasn't baptizing Gentiles to become Jews. He was baptizing Jews to identify with repentance. Turning from my wickedness to God. John recognized, as every God-fearing Jew would have, that just being part of the nation didn't mean you were actually Abraham's descendant. Later, Paul would clarify that for us in Romans and in his other letters. But the whole point of this here is that it's not good enough to say you belong. You have to actually belong. Now, maybe you've noticed we have a tendency to want to identify 
with things a lot. That's why we see people wearing sports jerseys, why you see grown men wearing the, the uh, jersey of another man with his name on the back. That's why when you go through the parking lot, test this if you doubt me, when you go through the parking lot, you're going to see bumper stickers and window decals all over the place, right? RV softball, power and motion gymnastics, 26.2 marathoners like to put that 26.2 on there. Now that 26.2 makes a lot of sense for my brother-in-law Brad, who for whatever reason, God only knows, runs marathons. I don't know why a sane person would choose to do that, but I never really accuse Brad of being sane anyway. So it makes sense though, right? Because he's run marathons. If I put a 26.2 sticker on my car, that's just dumb. Because I'm running to the fridge, uh, running to the bathroom. I'm running away from somebody chasing me, but I ain't running no 26.2 miles. So it would not make any sense for me to identify with a marathon if that's not who I am and that's not what I do. How do you know a marathoner? They run marathons. It's pretty simple math. John is saying, look, you want to identify with repentance? Shut your mouth and move your feet. Start living like repentant people. That's where the difference is made. Baptism is a public identification. It wasn't new. It was a, it was a ritual that was intended to reflect the reality of repentance. It identified a person with a new direction or a new way of life. Next we see repentance is an inner reality resulting in an outer activity. Baptism is a public identification. Repentance is an inner reality resulting in an outer activity. John didn't call the people to clean themselves up before getting baptized. He called them to live what they professed. If I'm going to say I've changed my thinking, then my direction and trajectory must inevitably show it. If I'm going to slap that 26.2 sticker on my car, I better get to the race. Obviously, no one is instantly perfect or mature. That's not what John's saying. It'll become clear as we read through it. He's talking about fruit. Well, fruit takes time to mature. For a newborn baby, it takes a long time for an infant to grow up. But along the way, healthy growth is observable. If you're not observing growth in your baby, you get concerned and you talk to a doctor about it. If you have an elementary age child who's not developing rightly, it's, it's observable, it's recognizable, and you intervene to try to fix this. Same is true in our spiritual life. John calls them and us to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. To produce fruit in keeping with what they're saying has happened on the inside. He's saying that the activity must match the identity. Real identity is a living reality. It's a living identity. It goes hand in hand. John's very language precludes the idea of salvation by works. The idea that, that fruit could be manufactured. Fruit can't be manufactured. Artificial fruit isn't fruit at all. Try eating that centerpiece on grandma's table sometime. The same thing is true spiritually. The fruit of repentance reflects God's love. That's not just a New Testament idea, in case you thought it was. It reflects God's love through relationships. I heard that somewhere before. might be the purpose of our church. We see in what John's telling these people, as he, he tells them to, to share what they have with those who don't have. He tells them to, to not collect more, uh, more than they are required to. Don't cheat the people. He's telling the soldiers, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. We see the, these ideas that are rooted in God's character. Compassion and generosity. Honesty and justice. Integrity and contentment. These come right out of God's commands for His people. He also says that a fruitless tree is worthless. The axe is already at the root of the tree. If you don't produce fruit, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit, it's getting burned up, thrown in the fire. Jesus will later say the same thing. 
A fruitless tree is worthless. A lack of fruit means a lack of real life. Therefore, the consequence is destruction. Practically speaking, your fruitfulness is the truthfulness of your usefulness. All right, so we, you got it? All right. Your fruitfulness, what you produce, is the truthfulness of your usefulness. You're not any use to the kingdom if you don't produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Ritual, reality. He goes on to talk about water and fire. John says, I baptize you with water. You you think I'm the Messiah? (laughs) Come on, listen. I'm baptizing you with water. The Messiah is coming. He's beyond comparison. What he's going to do is not worth, this. what I'm doing isn't worth comparing to what he's going to do. I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's also going to baptize you with fire. That is a word of hope and a word of warning. John dismisses his baptism as not worthy of comparing to the coming baptisms. This is two distinct immersions we're talking about of Messiah. Jesus will immerse us in the Holy Spirit. And those who are not immersed in the Holy Spirit will be immersed in fire of judgment. John's baptism is for identification with repentance. Christ's will be for regeneration, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and for judgment, the baptism of fire. Christian baptism combines these acts by identifying us with the saving work of Christ and with His body, the church. It doesn't matter what your beliefs about baptism are, there are... uh, there are folks in other denominations who have uh, a different view uh, teaching the, the physical presence of Christ in, in the Eucharist or in the communion. That's not what we believe is accurate, but folks believe that. Folks believe that, uh, that, the, the, um, that there's a spiritual presence of Christ in it. Folks believe that baptism can cause regeneration. It's part and parcel of this. Regardless of how you go about it, baptism, the ritual, is an identification with the church. It's an identification with the act of saving that Christ did in us. Communion is the same thing. There's an identification through the ritual that is intended to reflect the reality. So as John speaks of this baptism of water and of fire, notice also that Christ is both redeemer and judge. Messiah comes to save, Luke 19.10, the theme verse of the entire book, that He came to seek and to save that which was lost. But understand that that lostness is rooted in the fact that all who do not receive Him are already judged, already condemned. Jesus is both the Redeemer and the Judge. Too often we see Him only as one or the other. We reject God as mean and Harsh, because we see Jesus as only this judge. Or perhaps more often in the evangelical circles today, we see Him only as Redeemer. He's, he's loving. He's a nice guy. Well, we miss the point on both. Because it's not either or. It's both and. Jesus is Redeemer, and He is judge. He did come to save, but judgment is real. And there will be a reckoning when the saved and the lost are separated unto their respective eternal destinies. Mark this. Reality is greater than ritual. Reality is greater than ritual. That's what John is saying. Look, it's not that my baptism that I'm preaching here isn't important. That's not it at all. He's out here declaring to them that they need to come and be baptized to be identified with repentance. What he's saying is that the ritual is intended to reflect the reality. Therefore, the reality is more important. The ritual may be important. The reality is more important. This is an important principle in all religious practice. You need to recognize this in yourself. Ritual must reflect reality. Always. If you're going through the motions of a religious ritual and it's not reflecting the reality of your life, it is a waste. It is an insult to God. Reality is greater than ritual. Notice also this. Repentance is only part of the equation. We must be reborn or face judgment. 
Repentance is only part of the equation. We must be reborn or face judgment. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't, didn't you say that that's how it starts? Repentance is where we begin. Repentance is a change of the mind, and it's always part of this re- rebirth. But I can repent and turn away from this way and choose another way. I can recognize that what I'm doing doesn't bring me peace. Therefore, I choose Buddhism so I can find peace. And yet I'm not reborn, and I still face judgment. I can turn to Baha'i faith. I can turn to uh, secular materialistic science. Because my way isn't working, so I'm going to choose a different way. I repent. But it's not repentance unto salvation. It's not a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I'm not receiving the Holy Spirit because I'm changing. I'm just not changing in the right direction. Repentance is only part of it. We need the the rebirth that comes with an immersion in God's Holy Spirit. When Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, He sends new life. And everyone who receives Christ the Messiah as Savior and Lord receives the Holy Spirit, soaked in it, living in Him. Those who do not stand condemned already, according to John 3. Ritual and reality, water and fire. Let's talk about truth and consequences. This is perhaps difficult for us. Living and speaking the truth has consequences. John stood against the wicked godlessness of Herod and was imprisoned. John did what he did because of who he was, and it cost him. John was born to be the forerunner of Messiah. He received a word from God, and he proclaimed the truth, which is a truth that is good news. Here's life, here's death, leave death, come to life. Good news. But when he declared that to Herod, and said, Herod, listen, this wickedness, you'll answer for it. Turn, repent. Ditch the chick, get right with God. Paraphrasing. The reality here is that Herod didn't like it because it hurt. Notice, the Bible tells us that we we were once darkness, but in Christ we're now light. Light is going to have consequences. Because we are light in Him, we must live as that light. Who we are has to be shown. It's the nature of light to shine. And that always brings consequences. Write this down. Darkness hates light. Darkness hates light. Light exposes. By its very nature, light drives out darkness. In John 3... I didn't include this in your program. You can jot it down. John 3, verses 19 to 21. You can look at all of John 3, but 19 to 21. Jesus says, the verdict has come. Light's entered the world. But people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Those who are not living as darkness, they love the light. But when I flip on the lights, the cockroaches scatter. If I've lived in darkness for a long time, the light hurts my eyes. There's a a very real sense in which darkness hates light. Then this, there's a cost to being light. There is a cost to being light. It's not just speaking the truth that brings consequences. In case you thought it was John's preaching, no, it wasn't that. It was. It was more than that. It's the presence of life, of light, of truth. It's living the truth, not just speaking the truth that brings consequences. Live and let live doesn't work where light and darkness are concerned. Because darkness hates light. 
If you live in the light of Christ, the world will hate it and oppose it. There is no way around it. Jesus promised it. The world will hate you because it hated me first. If it doesn't, if it doesn't hate you, you don't look very much like Jesus because it hated him. If people aren't offended by the presence of your light, not the words of your mouth, but the activity of your life, if it's not shocking in a world this dark, then your light must be pretty dim. Maybe you're hiding it under a bushel. Maybe you're trying to aim it away so as not to be offensive. But if you are light, that light will shine. And if that light shines, the world will hate it. Others will try to pull you back into the darkness. Some of you have experienced this. Your old life, your old friends. Man, we should still have these old friends because they need our light. But those same old friends, maybe those old family members, maybe even a mate or a child or a parent will try to suck you back into the darkness to pull you back to who you used to be because it was more comfortable for them. Darkness hates light. If they can't do that, if they can't pull you back in, be prepared to be persecuted. That's the cost of being light. All right, let's wrap this thing up. Why does it matter? Why does all this stuff matter? In order to get to the gospel of salvation in Christ, we have to travel the road of repentance. John had to bring repentance before the world could be ready for Messiah. Because if the people of God did not recognize that they were on the wrong path, they could not choose the right path. Jesus came not just to show the way, but to be the way. And before anybody could come to him, they had to recognize that there was something inherently broken and wrong. Before we can see Christ, we must see life differently. There's no salvation without repentance. But repentance is more than a profession of faith or a religious ritual. Repentance is a changed mind that brings a changed direction. So I can't find Christ in words or ceremonies. Finding real life in Christ requires giving my whole life to Christ. Finding real life in Christ requires giving my whole life to Christ. This is a foundational truth to the gospel. It's a necessary part of following Jesus. I'm either all in or I'm all out. That can be hard for us to hear. But if I don't repent, if I don't see that something is broken, if I don't change the way I think, if I don't change the way I view life, then I cannot recognize the centrality of Christ, the necessity of living for Him. He will not be Savior where He is not Lord. If I'm still going to try to do things my way, there is no salvation for me. I cannot say, Lord, Lord, save me. I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. Lord, I don't like the destination at the end of this road. Can you please change the destination and leave me on this road? I like the scenery. I just don't like where it ends up. Jesus said, there's a hole in that road. That road's a dead end. It might seem nice now. It might be pretty. It might be smooth. It's obviously not in Michigan. It might be smooth. <laughs> but the reality of that road is it ends in death. It ends in condemnation. There is no escape from it. If you stay on that road, you die. You will be consumed with unquenchable fire. And along the way, you might think it's a happy trip because you're oblivious to the fact that you're, dri you're driving directly in to the furnace. Finding real life in Christ requires giving my whole life to Christ. Not my words, not just my Sunday mornings. Yes, that. Yes, your words and your Sunday mornings. 
He doesn't want your leftovers. He doesn't want your pieces, your parceled out generosity with your time to God. I love the Lord so much, I'm going to give him an hour of my week. I go to real life, I'm going to give him two hours of my week. Because I really love God. God says it's 24-7 or I don't even know you. That doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you've got it all figured out and all fixed. It means you've changed your direction and you're letting him drive the car. You stumble, you fall, you get up. You start to get pulled back into that old life, you come back. Because you can never live there again. I can't be okay with it. I'll still sin, but I can't be okay with sin anymore because it's not who I am. And the light in me hates the darkness I used to be. And the darkness that I had hates the light Christ has brought. Repentance is part of it. It has to be real. What difference does it make in my daily walk? Let's be real practical. I want to have harmony. I want to have peace. If I'm going to have the peace and harmony that comes with a congruent life, it has to start with my thinking. It starts in my head. I have to recognize that there is something wrong with me. And when I recognize and I turn from my way to God's way, I begin to see life differently and it changes my affections. When it changes my affections, that happens in my heart. I begin to value things differently. I begin to see Christ as sweet and glorious and beautiful and desirable. Before he was offensive, now I want nothing but him. My thinking in my head changes the affection of my heart. And if I've changed my thinking and my affection, my head and my heart, it shows up in my hands. My identity drives my activity. Starts here. Changes how I think and feel changes how I begin to live. But not just sporadically. I need to change my habits as well. If this is happening in me on a consistent basis, I begin to change my default mode. I spent my whole life becoming who I am. I've learned how to think a certain way, how to act a certain way, and I have to undo that through discipline. Notice disciple and discipline, same root. I have to put effort into the relationship. That work, that effort doesn't make me his, but it does bring my life into harmony. When I change my habits, now the way I live begins to reflect what I have, what I have received as truth. I've chosen to believe it. It's changed my affections my changed affections now change my actions, and my changed actions need to become consistent over time. I change my default mode. I change my habits. And when that changes, it brings my life into harmony. That's when I can begin to receive the peace of God that transcends all understanding, and it guards my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. For me to do that, I have to live what I say I believe. Will that be easy? Heavens no. Will that be consistent? No, it probably won't. You see, repentance and belief are congruent, but they're not equal. I may very well stumble a lot, I'll still have the same tendencies and struggles that I had before, but now I know where to go with them. Now I know if I'm going to do this, my habits got to get me focused into God's Word. If I'm not going to meditate on His Word day and night, then I'm going to continue to think the way I used to think. I'm going to continue to act the way I used to act. And then I'll have this pattern where I over and over and over again say, Oh man, I'm, I'm, pray for me, I'm really struggling with my faith. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with asking people to pray for you because you're struggling with your faith. There's nothing wrong with struggling with your faith. But if you're still struggling the same way you were before, and there's no progress and there's no change, it's probably because you haven't changed your habits. You believed, you began to have an affection, and you've done good things, but it's sporadic. If I don't change my habits... If I don't get myself rooted in his word so I renew my mind, then my transformation will be really up and down with this deep amplitude. But I want to bring that 
closer, closer together. I'm still going to have low spots. I want to bring them up. I'm still going to have high spots, but I want to keep these high spots in reality so I don't begin to think all of my life is just going to be skipping around being happy. That's not how the Christian life works. There's a cost to it. But the cost can't bring me down anymore because I've changed my habits as a result of my thinking, my head, my heart, my hands. And as this all comes together, I begin to have a confidence in God. I begin to know Him and trust Him. So I still run into scary things in life. I still run into hard temptations. But because of these changes, I view them differently. And I can hand them over to the one who's really in control. It won't come all at once. But it comes by choice. Choose to change. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have you've given us a Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer, who has done all the work of salvation for us. You have given us your spirit. You've made us your children when we choose to receive that gift. <laughs> Lord, even our ability to see it and choose it comes from you. So we pray that that you would create in us a clean heart, a new right heart, a steadfast spirit. Lord, we know we're still going to hit a lot of bumps along the way and it's going to be a, a difficult, painful growth process like any other growth is. But we know that you're not finished with us yet. So Father, help us to stop expecting Christian perfection in this life. Help us to stop condemning ourselves for the natural growth curve. But at the same time, help us not to excuse a lack of growth, a lack of health, a lack of spiritual exercise. Lord, keep us from judging others and condemning them because they're not growing well enough for us. Their change doesn't look good enough to our mind. Remind us that they answer to you, not to us. Protect us from the fear of letting our light shine. In every way, Lord, remake us. Regenerate us. Create us anew today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.